Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And as usual, well, where do we start? Gunboats taking on France, defending the fish. I don't know, do the gunboats shoot the fish or I don't know what they do. We've had Boris Johnson talking about the Australian style arrangements being wonderful. Even Australia, and we're not Australia, don't like their arrangements with the EU and are renegotiating. I mean, wherever you turn, there are fantasy after fantasy being pumped out. At the very least, the government's communication strategy under Johnson needs challenging, but that's at the very, very least. What a crazy situation. Some of you listening to this might know the outcome of this particular phase of Brexit. It won't be the end, whatever the outcome, but the end of this particular phase. Quite a lot of you won't know, as I am recording, the talks are back on again. We had a reasonably upbeat statement from the EU, and then up pops Johnson again, hailing Australia style. I don't know whether he thinks we're going to get the sunny weather of Australia by keeping on talking about Australia. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Not good for the blood pressure. Those of us who have doubts about Johnson's leadership are suffering under that burden at the moment. But for those of you who admire him, this must be a glorious time in your life. Anyway, before we get going, and I'll tell you how we're going to get going today, if it's all right with you in a second, I will just mention I'm live at King's Place on Wednesday. It's the rock and roll politics, no deal or bad deal, which is better than a no deal Christmas special. It's live at seven o'clock and it will be there at King's Place. So those of you who can make it, please come along. It'll be socially distanced. The place is fantastic on the COVID front, as in good at keeping us all safe, not fantastic as in letting COVID go wild. Anyway, live at King's Place. Uh, We'll have some fun. It must be your Christmas outing of choice. And then, if you can't, it's being streamed live as well. So you can watch it around the world, 7pm or later if you're watching from Australia, say, as I'm sure many of you will be. In fact, I know some who do. Tell us about your Australian-style deal. Uh, Email me on Wednesday or next week's podcast. But anyway, given that once again we are in this waiting for Godot limbo, and because I'm doing the show live on Wednesday, oh, by the way, there will be plenty of time for questions in that show, so please send them in uh, from uh, 7 o'clock or before on Wednesday, and the whole of the second half bits of the first will be doing questions and predictions and so on. But anyway, because of that, and because there have been so many brilliant questions, all related to the running themes of our mad times. I'm going to kind of do the podcast via the questions, and that does mean it will still absolutely address the issue of the day because it's dominated the the questions, all of which have been brilliant. So I'm going to get going with a few of those. And if, while you're listening, you hear that there's a deal or no deal, do text me or something or tweet me and let me know and I'll change it. Might have to do that on Wednesday night. I think that will be a night of drama as well. So I'm going to begin with Joanna Larter and you'll see what I mean about how we're going to keep on track with the big issues of the moment. Joanna has said, I've been wondering if Boris Johnson 
is trying to artificially create his Churchill moment by potentially having these gunboats standing by to protect the British fishermen. He obviously sees himself as a Churchillian figure, and this gives him an opportunity to present that image. This begs the question, did he always intend a no deal so that he could look for an excuse to up the ante? Does this then imply he has actually thought through the effect of his actions, which he isn't exactly well known for? Well, we can answer that question right away, Joanna. He doesn't think things through. Um, if you look back, the number of statements he has uttered, which he then moves away from as if he has never uttered them. Um, I was thinking about in terms of the no deal. I don't know if any of you read, there was a very good interview by the president of the NFU, Minette Batters, for The Times a couple of weeks ago. And in the interview, she had just had a private meeting with Boris Johnson. And she revealed to The Times, in that meeting, Boris Johnson said to her, he would rather die than harm British farmers. Now, one of the sectors that would be slaughtered by his wonderful, wonderful Australia, wonderful, would be the farming sector. So he utters a lot without thinking it through. I don't think he realises that if you move on to WTO rules, they too will have constraints. There will be no pure sovereignty under WTO rules. And there will be rules-based agencies who will adjudicate if it is deemed that a country might be moving away from WTO rules in some form or another. And that agency will not be the UK Parliament. It will be from representatives from other countries. So sovereignty, which he regards, in theory he does anyway, I mean, who knows what he really thinks, as this absolute purity of um, divine, a divine concept almost, doesn't apply under WTO rules but he's going to put us there possibly because he can't get pure sovereignty and access to the single market in the way he wants. In terms of the rest of it, Joanna, I think there is a kind of fantasy streak with him. I've read quite recently his book on Churchill. It's better than I thought it was in that he clearly did know a bit about Churchill, which helps a bit when you're writing his biography. And it is very easy to read in his style. But he believes, I think he said it, in, you know, character is destiny, that politics is determined by great leaders. It's the great man theory or great woman theory. It was the great man theory, great woman theory, great person theory in leadership and sees himself in that mould. And it is so dangerous because it is fantastical. I mean, Churchill, who incidentally was a deeply flawed figure, would not have got us into this mess because he did have the capacity at times, though not always, to think things through. And sending these naval vessels or whatever they were, and the idea that that would soften up France and the European Union. Oh my God, we better cave into old Churchill in number 10. He's sending a couple of vessels from the Navy to sort out our fish. I mean, yeah. It, it is worrying, but of course some British newspapers lapped it up and really did present it as Dunkirk. Anyway, thank you for your question. Jeff Strange writes, he, oh, he's loving the podcast, he's, but he, oh, thank you for that, but he's given up on the 10K as so many books to catch up from well-respected political gurus. Yeah, Jeff, combine the two. 
can read and go for a run and uh, anyway now he points out we're back onto the Australian deal on uh, yeah that's right I think I might have mentioned this already it was on BBC question time they had on the former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull who warned that the Australian deal with the EU was far removed from the quote sunny uplands vision that Johnson evokes whenever he mentions it and that he was also made clear that Australia is renegotiating these terms because they're no good. Uh, I don't know if Johnson knows any of this or if he does, he still thinks because it's Australia, people think, oh, it'd be sunny. Maybe we should go for it. Anyway, Jeff draws a brilliant analogy with the film The Wizard of Oz, good Christmas film. Jeff won't have time to do it because he'll be reading all the political gurus. And it's a brilliant analogy. If it's okay, Jeff, I won't read it now because we've got a lot to get through. But he does conclude by saying we could all keep on singing somewhere over the rainbow. Well, there must be hope somewhere. I mean, as I record this podcast, it's all a bit gloomy. Bit bloody gloomy. But we could all keep on singing. Everyone who listens to this podcast must now keep on singing somewhere over the rainbow without quite knowing the analogy Jeff was highlighting. Stuart Smith has another question. It's all related. Oh, Stuart says he listens, enduring another bout on the rowing machine to keep the onset of middle age at bay. Blimey, the rowing machine. I think that is the most arduous excursion I've heard so far. Excursion? Exercise with you on the rowing machine. How fast do you go? I mean, you know, it must be quite hard to concentrate. Maybe this podcast is so undemanding, you can kind of break all records on rowing machines and running. Anyway, thank you for listening while you're doing that. Amazing. And Stuart also says something nice. He says he's rereading my book about prime ministers, uh, available in all good bookshops and online, of course, for Christmas. And I'm struck by, oh, by the way, on that, sorry, Stuart, before I come to the question, I hope all of you who emailed the usual email address asking for me to sign a label with a message if you've bought the book, The Prime Ministers, uh, from Wilson to Johnson as a Christmas present, you've all got the labels. If you haven't, because a lot of you uh, have asked for this, please email me to let me know, and I'll make sure you get it the moment I get that email. I think I've sent them all from those who have asked, but I might have missed a couple because there were lots, so do let me know. Anyway, Stuart says he was struck by how driven the Prime Ministers of the 70s were by their own experiences, particularly the impact of mass unemployment in the 1930s. He's right, one of my themes looking at Heath, Wilson and Callaghan and how they responded to the crises of the 70s, which was the last decade we had epic crises unique to this country, as we are about to experience with Brexit. Their responses were hugely determined by the mass unemployment of the 1930s, in good ways, but in some respect in bad ways. And then their their wartime experiences too. That applied to other big figures beyond the prime ministers, famously... Dennis Healy, Tony Bear, and others from that era. Do you think one of the reasons we seem to have been governed so recklessly in the past 10 years is because our political rulers haven't had that depth of experience and therefore their decisions have been made without the deep historical context of their predecessors? 
and has the absence of context led to a more dangerous form of risk-taking? Very good questions. And I think the answers to both are yes. If you look at some of the decision-making in recent years, whether you're on the right or the left, they have been shallow. They haven't really thought through the consequences of the decisions and in some cases didn't really understand, I think, the countries they were governing. When Cameron called that referendum, for example, the Brexit referendum in 2016, I don't think he had any real sense of the impact of his and George Osborne's economic policies on areas you know, the famous North of England Brexit vote and so on, and the scale of disillusionment. I think in a rather shallow way, he still thought it was 1997. And if he kind of did a fake or a pale imitation of Tony Blair, that would get him through. Those politicians were bigger. That doesn't mean they didn't make huge errors. Wilson Heath and Callaghan made big errors. They weren't really seeing what was happening in front of their eyes because they were looking at things through a prism of the 1930s and 40s. In some ways, they were much bigger figures and more impressive and substantial. But they too made mistakes. But they were in a different league in terms really of a sense of principled integrity. You could disagree with them compared with some of the shallow rulers since. Uh, Thank you for that, uh, Stuart. Chris Park asks... In 2016, Brexiteers made guarantees about what Brexit would deliver. Crucially, they didn't say that these promises were conditional on the EU giving them everything they want. So they shouldn't be allowed now to get away with it. Should broadcasters return again and again to the unconditional guarantees they made in 2016? I think to some extent, Chris, that they do return to those, but... Here is something most of you will disagree with, but this is what I think. That if a Prime Minister is foolish enough to call a referendum and there is a side campaigning for Brexit, a referendum becomes a battle, not a public education exercise. And if they say outrageous things, lies, totally mendacious claims, and get away with it, That is the fault of the other side, but the fundamental fault is calling a referendum. So the moment Cameron cleared the ground for a referendum on something as complex as Brexit, he is culpable. And those who put that nonsense on the bus about the health service and all the rest of it, yes, of course they should be challenged now. But in a way, it's too late on one level. They were given that space by the decision to hold a referendum. I'm not a fan of referendums. I think they're a complete disaster area, to be honest. And the most complex issues become so simplified, so distorted, so lied about. But yeah, I mean, I think they should be challenged on that. And of course, challenged on many other things since. I mean, we are now finally getting quotes from that general election a year ago. And we should have a look at that election, maybe a bit on Wednesday night. Because there's no doubt at all in saying he had an oven-ready deal. Put it in the microwave. I don't know why you need a microwave after it's oven-ready. But he completely linked it to a trade deal. He, he might have meant the withdrawal deal, but he then said, oh, yeah, supply chains, absolutely fine. Million to one chance of no deal. Now, these were things of more recent claim, not made in the midst of a referendum battle, that were out 
outrageous. So they, yeah, they should be challenged on everything at the moment because finally reality is surfacing and it's bleak. Rob Gardner writes, I'm a listener from the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands. Right, well, I bet you're probably sunbathing at this moment. Uh, real comments, oh yeah, this is about last week. And this is a good point Rob makes. Last week I talked about the extraordinary self-confidence of these Etonian prime ministers. Cameron, no majority in 2010, implementing a programme of the radical right as if he had a landslide of 200, compared with Blair in 97, who did have a landslide of nearly 200, who moved very cautiously and tentatively, keeping one eye on the newspapers, one eye on these so-called Middle England voters. And then Johnson, who has the self-confidence to dangle the hell of a no deal and claim it's wonderful. Now, Rob makes the point, it's arrogance. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. It is partly arrogance. What I should have also added, by the way, is that although quite a lot of us, maybe most of us listening, say disagree with Brexit, maybe some of us, quite a lot of us listening, disagree with chutzpah of imposing that economic policy from 2010 when they hadn't won an overall majority in partnership with the Lib Dems who had opposed the austerity program in the election. It is both confidence and an arrogance, but it is a virtue as well. I mean, we might disagree with it, but it is fantastic if you do agree that you have these people willing to defy election results and all the obstacles that normally would intimidate less self-confident, less arrogant leaders. They do it. And I think Keir Starmer needs to take a note from these people. It's much harder being a Labour leader because you have much of the media against you. And that fuels a desperate sense of insecurity and lack of confidence. But even so, they need to take a close look, the Labour leadership, at the Cameron, not May so much, but the other Etonian Johnson. They said they would do things. They were in minority governments at first, uh, either with a coalition or Johnson in a desperate hung parliament. And they got away with it. And they did it. So it is both a vice and a virtue if you agree with what they do. And Joe, kind of related to this, Joe Thomas, who, by the way, listens to the podcast while doing his laundry. That is very impressive, Joe, but it's the most inactive exercise of the ones we've had today. Go, get on that rowing machine. That, that's, you know, forget about clean clothes. Anyway, Joe writes a lot about the media. I'm only going to do one half today because we've got a lot to get through. He's talking about the challenge for a Labour leadership dealing with a largely pro-conservative media, one that heavily influences the BBC. And he asks a second question, what can Labour do about it except fly to Australia, as Tony Blair did in July 1995? He went to Australia, as many of you will know. He was invited by Rupert Murdoch to attend a News International meeting in Australia. And I, I went with him, actually. I was a BBC political correspondent. He didn't want anyone to go, and no one else had the money to go. But the BBC, never knowingly understaffed in events like this, sent me. And I flew out with, uh, it was, who was it? It was Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, and Angie Hunter. It was crazy. 
24-hour flight, I think three days in Australia and then back just to woo Rupert Murdoch. He was worried that I was there, but I understood completely what he was doing. And to answer Joe's question, you can't beat these newspapers. You have to try and engage with them. And to try at least, and this was his aim in going to Australia then, he hoped at best to neuter the Sun's relentless hostility. The Times, which is a very influential paper on the BBC, they think it's sort of impartial when it's emphatically not. Recently it's been a very pro-Tory paper on the whole. You have to try and work out ways of doing it. I don't blame Blair for doing it. What went wrong in the end is they became so obsessed with these newspapers that it in some ways rendered them even more cautious to the point sometimes of paralysis. Can we do this without the sun? Can we do blah, blah, blah? And of course, in relation to Europe, it hindered them making the case for Britain being part of the European Union. So, you know, they went too far, but I can completely understand if you're a Labour leader, you need them to at least take you seriously and respectfully and ideally to get their backing. Even now, the media is much more fractured than it was when Blair made that trip in 95. But I can see why he did it, and Starmer needs to do similar things. He needs to do a lot more. By the way, uh, there isn't a question about him now, but I'll say again, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast, I might talk more about this on Wednesday night. I think he's making a big mistake if he uh, supports the thin deal, if that's what it is. It's easier for him if it's no deal because he can tear it apart. But if there's a deal and he backs it, it will be an example of what I was saying earlier. The insecurity of Labour leaders quite often doing what they don't believe compared with the arrogant stroke confidence of Tory leaders. And I know he will argue it's the if you don't do it, you're backing no deal. But that's not quite the case unless there's a huge Tory revolt against the deal. And then, of course, he must back it. But I suspect there won't be. We'll see. Yeah, Nicola Whitfield has really got me um, thinking. You know, you quite often try and analyse, I bet you've done it as well, when all this kind of Euroscepticism, and actually it's more than that. That's a quite polite way of saying there's almost a sort of anti-Europe sentiment. In other words, a lot of the Eurosceptic Tory MPs will not get worked up about pooling sovereignty over a US trade deal or on WTO rules where you, in effect, lose pure sovereignty. But Europe, oh, they are off. Anyway, Nicola, I was going to put it, I was going to date it to, um, you know, the famous Jacques Delors social chapter stuff and Thatcher, Falklands War when Union Jacks were flying and British exceptionalism came up again. Nicola says, do you think that the post-Reformation religious history that distinguishes the last largely Protestant UK from the largely Catholic Europe religious exceptionalism may be a factor in contemporary anti-European sentiment. Well, there we go. I haven't kind of thought about that, and I must give it some more thought. 
it's complicated and blurred because of course you have the whole Irish dimension to the Brexit question as you do to the Protestant UK Catholic question but you pose a question I don't know the answer but I'm putting it out there for further reflections because it's a very interesting point I'm gonna have to go back to trace the origins of this way beyond the Falklands War Thatcher and uh, Jacques Delors because it clearly is deep she also asked a question about this sort of the self-confidence of Tories and self insecurity of Labour but if it's okay Nicola I'll I'll stick with that one and uh, move on James Newman oh James says I listened to your podcast while playing FIFA the football game on the Xbox well I, I hope you're able to concentrate on both actually no I hope you're concentrating on the podcast and playing terrible Uh, with the FIFA your team loses every time because you're focusing on whether things like the Catholic Europe and Protestant UK religious exceptionalism explains the origins of uh, Euroscepticism and if your team is doing well you can't be concentrating on these big themes anyway thank you there's a, a question James is focusing again on why Tory prime ministers especially Etonians have way more confidence than Labour leaders and he said it's not surprising at all it's pretty straightforward to use a footballing analogy very appropriately given what you're doing it's as if uh, there's a title race and you're comparing the Real Madrid manager with the Sunderland one of course the Real Madrid manager will be more arrogant and cocky especially when the referee and linesman are on his side in this case the mainstream media a lot about the media and uh, the questions today if you are born with loads of money that is sadly what happens most of the time and he suggests that perhaps a future Labour leader will only prevail when they get someone like Brian Clough a maverick who doesn't care about debating with toffs and can face down the right-wing media with a mixture of self-belief and comedy well I, I, you probably know this but I think um, when Michael Foote was leader he was a very good fr- and this was not one of Labour's high points um, Michael Foote was a figure of huge brilliance and depth and I reflect on him often Uh, but he had a hellish three years but one of the things he and of course lost in 1983 through circumstances way beyond his leadership but he tried to persuade Brian Clough to stand I think as a Labour MP I think it was Michael Foote he got on very well with Clough Foote was a passionate football follower as well as everything else and it's a good you know it's not bad I mean you do need that self-confidence of a clough who didn't give a damn to prevail sometimes and the problem with Labour leaders is that they have lost so often they begin their leadership in the context of defeat and that's the that was the case with Blair and it's the case with Starmer now both Uh, became leaders after four election defeats and that doesn't actually build the self-confidence as you can imagine Uh, Nick Baldwin asks about um, the Etonian issue he says I'm not a psychologist but think that Etonian self-confidence and Brexit are linked the Tories do believe that they have a right to rule as the natural party of government and as such they don't think anyone else should interfere with that right so they don't want the EU in Brussels constraining them and that's why they're obsessed with sovereignty as the big win for them with Brexit and he says it's the same uh, with devolution and other things about giving away power because they want to rule now Nick I think you're partly right but here we get to the heart of a real 
divide in Tory thinking. And that is, they have awareness of the state, awareness of big government, sometimes actually awareness of parliament. Look at how Johnson tried to prorogue parliament. And yet they want to rule hyperactively from London. And that is a contradiction. It was the case to some extent with Thatcher, who would always rail against the state, and yet she was a hyperactive ruler. And so they are confused at times. You know, so you will get speeches saying markets should rule and all the rest of it, and the state should keep out of people's lives. You get that a lot less now with Johnson and with Theresa May, but with Cameron, Osborne, going back to Thatcher, that was a message. Whilst at the same time, they were, as you suggest, more than assertive in their right to rule. Thank you. So here is a question from Sue Wixley, who is at the social, or is certainly part of the Social Liberal Forum. And she says they've just done some research and conducted an online poll of 1,650 UK adults. And it finds that when given a direct choice between giving government whatever power it needs, this is a related question again, and giving everyone the opportunity to have their voice heard as the best way to solve the problems of the country, more than twice as many people chose the latter, 50% versus 24%. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this, and this we should probably have a discussion at some point, because I'm not surprised when questions are posed about whether people want their voice heard and giving power to the people. One of Cameron's phrases from the John Lennon song, Power to the People. Uh, the, the thing, I have two questions to raise, Sue, about that. The first is, is it that surprising when asked that people say, yeah, we would prefer to decide and not have everything concentrated at the centre? But the second question is, in what form? What form does the power take to allow people to decide? I mean, this was a part of the whole Cameron big society thing. The state should step aside and let people take greater responsibility. But how? I always used to say to those people, you know, Oliver Letwin, Steve Hilton, or Cameron's uh, team in opposition, what are the mediating agencies to empower people? But it is interesting that your survey finds a willingness to be empowered, but how and in what form? Uh, perhaps the rest of your report goes into that, but let me know. It's an interesting question that again relates to this whole issue of the self-confidence and arrogance of some prime ministers, prime ministerial rulers without justification in the case of the current occupant. Uh, Matthew Daly is a former Tory voter who says he detects Etonian complacency more than confidence. He says you spoke about Boris lacking intellectual confidence. He's lazy and is frightened of detail, hence his crutches like Cummings. What Cameron Johnson and others have in common is not so much confidence but this complacency. So the Scottish referendum, Cameron held it, it'll be okay. He uh, points out, Matthew, it was just. EU referendum, it'll be okay. Matthew points out, as we all know, it wasn't just. We'll get a good deal. No, we won't. COVID, we have a fantastic health care. It will be fine. We weren't. And so on. 
he writes over the last four years, it will be fine, is a staggering statement and speaks of this complacent sense of English exceptionalism. I agree. I think this term English exceptionalism explains so much about Brexit, about the apparent complacency over a no deal, and much, much more, the original response to COVID, as Matthew suggests. But listen to this. Matthew also says, I'm both headhunter and farmer and work largely from home. I listen to your podcast, particularly in the winter, clearing sheds. How about that? I mean, what a, that, that surely tops rowing. I'm happy to give you credit for making the daily process of clearing shit a more enjoyable process than it would otherwise have been. And that's the greatest honour I've ever had from a, a, an emailer to this podcast in terms of the activity being conducted while listening. Matthew, thank you very much indeed. Derek Chapman poses a, a related question. Do you know of any other democracy in the world where party political allegiance is so shackled to social class? I don't actually. I mean, there are other shackles, which we all know about. In France, there is a kind of Paris elite where you can sort of rise up from various schools and universities and all the rest of it. But it's not as class-based as this one here in the UK. We know in the United States, you have to have a ton of money before standing to be a president. But again, it's not class-based. And this has been a real problem that, you know, some of the education reforms have been conducted as if the UK was classless, but it isn't. And it's a huge question. And you can still see the dream route to power in England anyway, is Eton or a public school equivalent, Oxbridge, joining something like the Conservative Research Department, and you're almost Prime Minister by that point. It is extraordinary how those routes are still such a smooth way to power. But there is a counter to that, which is, I've talked about this before, and I think many of you will disagree, but there is now a fashion for localism where you elect a candidate who is local. And that is the main qualification, not their capacities to be necessarily a good prime minister, cabinet minister, shadow cabinet minister, leader of the opposition. And that too is problematic, but my God, the other route has presented us with all these problems in recent times. Uh, the, the re-rise the re of the Etonian prime minister, and not in the same league as some of the previous ones like Macmillan. And finally, from Pete Morris, he says, question, uh, more of a general comment, he says, everything centres quite rightly now on the financial consequences of Brexit, but nobody seems to dare mention the reason the vote went the way it did, which was a plain and simple racism. Farage and co played the racist card, sat back, got away with it, and now everybody pretends it was about fish. You're absolutely right, Pete, it wasn't about, I can't remember fish being mentioned during the referendum or not very much I mean you, you, you were aware that the fisher the fish sector were pro-Brexit uh, but it wasn't quite as dominant as that and now everyone's obsessed with fish I've never I don't even eat fish I've never I dream about it and by the way if there's no deal the the fishing sector will be in deep trouble it's one of the many ironies because they sell so much to the European market 
and under no deal there would be a completely disastrous arrangement. I mean, the fishing sector surely must, I know they're not in some cases, but many of them surely, when they think it through, that famous phrase, thinking things through, must want a deal. That was an element. It wasn't the only element of Brexit, but uh, racism was part of it, absolutely, clearly. It's very difficult for politicians to say that because politicians aren't allowed to criticise voters. Voters can do it the other way around, of course, and do all the time. But as we know, look at Gordon Brown in that 2010 election when he bumped into, what was her name, Gillian Duffy, when his mic was still on and called her a bigot or something, and all hell broke loose and he was devastated. You're not allowed to do it, but it was an issue, and we pretend not to, uh, that it wasn't, but it was. There were many others. That's one of the problems with referendums. What were the determining factors? They, it's subjective. And were any of them central to the question being asked? Anyway, we will be living through this for months and months, years and years, and certainly in the next uh, few days. Oh, by the way, Pete says, Joyce the podcast, I've been reading and listening to you for more years now than we would both care to remember. Blimey, that makes me sound about 95. I'm still starting out. I better get rowing and doing all the other things to make sure that the starting out rings true. Anyway, I think you'll agree those brilliant questions were a guide to some of the extraordinary issues we're living through at the moment. I hope to see you all at King's Place or on the live stream on Wednesday. We might know by then whether we're having a silly deal which is much better than the no deal, which would be calamitous but you can get tickets on the king's place website both the tickets for the live stream and if you can make it it would be great live at king's place we will make sense of whatever we are by wednesday night it starts at seven see you all there thanks for your questions and as i say if you've asked for labels and haven't got them do let me know keep the questions and the points coming see you at the podcast next week and King's Place on Wednesday night. Thank you. Thank you.